We've been reading through the Chronicles of Narnia as part of our quarantine time. I actually don't know how many times I've read this series. Over 20, certainly. We finished up The Silver Chair last week. If you haven't read it, or if it's been a while, the land of Narnia, created by the song of Aslan the Great Lion, occasionally needs help from children that arrive from beyond the world's end. Our world. In this case, a boy named Eustace Scrub and a girl named Jill Pole, who join up with a marshwiggle named Puddleglum to seek a lost prince who's been gone for over a decade. It turns out that he was kidnapped by an evil queen who actually rules a land a mile below the earth called Underland. As the rescue party is planning their escape, she unexpectedly arrives and interrupts them. And of course, she's not going to let her capture go quite so easily. And so she begins to talk with them about things. She throws some magical powder on a fire and strums a mandolin and asks them if they're really sure they're going to this land above the world, because does such a land even really exist? And this is part of how their conversation goes. What is this sun you all keep speaking of? Do you mean anything by the word? Yes, we jolly well do, said Eustace. Can you tell me what it's like? asked the witch. Thrum, thrum thrum with the strings and the prince replied well you see that lamp it's round and yellow and gives light to the room and hangs from the roof the thing we call the sun is like the lamp only far greater and brighter and gives light to the whole overworld and hangs in the sky hangs from what my lord asked the witch and while they were all thinking about how to answer her she laughed and said you see when you try to think out clearly what the sun must be you cannot tell me you can only tell me it's like the lamp your son is a dream, and there is nothing in that dream that was not copied from the lamp. The lamp is the real thing. The sun is but a tale, a children's story. Yes, I see now, said Jill, in a heavy, hopeless tone. It must be so. And while she said this, it seemed to her to be very good sense. Slowly and gravely the witch repeated, There is no sun. And altogether they said, you are right, there is no sun. It was such a relief to give in and say it. There never was a sun, said the witch. No, there never was a sun, said the prince and the marshwiggle and the children. For the last few minutes, Jill had been feeling that there was something she must remember at all costs. And now she did, but it was dreadfully hard to say it. She felt as if huge weights were laid on her lips, and at last, with an effort that seemed to take all the good out of her, she said, there's Aslan. The goal for the witch is to convince this group that overland, the sun, the grass that grows, and Aslan himself are not the real story. They're dreams. The real story is happening down in her dark underland. At least she hopes that's what they'll be lulled into believing and live out instead. Hold on to that as we start diving into our scripture today. This is our second to last week in the book of Jeremiah. So you likely know by now that Jeremiah keeps warning, God's patience and God's carrying of your sin is ending, largely because it's getting too heavy with all of its injustice. And so Jeremiah says, return, please. Also, return or else. We are in chapter 44 and or else has happened. Babylon advanced on the city. And this group of Judites decided to organize an escape to Egypt, and they took Jeremiah with them. This was movement, certainly, but it is not returning. 
In fact, God has said that the way forward was to submit to Babylon. Babylon's being used by God in order to not just bring destruction, but to ultimately bring restoration. But on the other hand, you can probably understand the logic of this group in Egypt. We're being attacked. We don't want to die. Let's escape and save ourselves. And of course, they think they need to save themselves. They have long lived without a connection to the real protection of God. And so that's where we start. This is Jeremiah 44, starting in verse 15. Then all the men who were aware that their wives had been making offerings to other gods, and all the women who stood by, a great assembly, all the people who lived in Pathros in the land of Egypt, answered Jeremiah. As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we are not going to listen to you. Instead, we will do everything that we have vowed. Make offerings to the queen of heaven and pour out libations to her, just as we and our ancestors, our kings, and our officials used to do in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. We used to have plenty of food and prospered and saw no misfortune. But from the time we stopped making offerings to the queen of heaven and poured out libations to her, we've lacked everything and we perished by the sword and by famine. And the women said, indeed, we will go on making offerings to the queen of heaven and pouring out libations to her. Do you think we made cakes for her marked with her image and poured out libations to her without our husbands being involved? And so first, a quick who, what, when, where, and why on this. Who's the queen of heaven? She is a goddess of sorts. Actually, the mythology is that she is God's wife. That if God's up in heaven, God must have a wife. And that's who this queen of heaven is. What was happening? Well, like all idols, there are rituals and sacrifices that people make to her in order to procure her protection and her provision. And amidst those rituals is a ribbon of fear. Because you cannot just offer worship to her, you must also be very afraid of what happens if you stop. And this is true for most of the idols. And again, this is where Yahweh is different. In the extreme lengths, both of time and of gestures, that God will go to to bring people back before consequences come. The idols are all pretty uh, rash and picky. And God is known for benevolence, love, patience, and compassion in a way that's different than everyone else. When? When did they stop making offerings? This is likely when Josiah came and he brought a series of reforms at the time. They were earnest and imperfect, short-lived, but far more than ever before. And he burned down, the Bible says, the Asherah poles, which were places of ritual worship to this goddess queen of heaven. Where are we? Remember, we're now in Egypt. We should be in Jerusalem, submitted to Babylon. And instead, we're in Egypt. And Jeremiah's there too. This is actually where his story and his life end. He was taken off with this group to Egypt against his will. And so it's funny, and by funny I mean sad, that they are returning to Egypt, the land where they were enslaved until Yahweh saved them. But the key question, the really fascinating one, I think, to this little story is why. Because why is what makes this vignette of idolatry a little bit different than maybe other times in the book of Jeremiah that we've seen that theme before. You see, this time there's something going on in the midst of why they're so convinced they need to start worshiping the queen of heaven. Why do they think they need to go on saying, as verse 19 said, making offerings to the queen of heaven, pouring out libations to her, making cakes for her, marked with her image. So if you revisit verses 16 to 18 again, we see this why. Listen for it with me as I read. As for the words you've spoken to us in the name of the Lord, 
we're not going to listen to you. Instead, we will do everything we vowed, make offerings to the Queen of Heaven, pour libations to her. And here it is in verse 17. We used to have plenty of food and prospered and saw no misfortune. But from the time we stopped making offerings to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out libations to her, we've lacked everything and perished by the sword and famine. We stopped worshiping her and now things are bad. That's the reason all this is happening. You want us to exclusively listen to God, but clearly that is a terrible idea, Jeremiah. We need her to be saved and to be prosperous. As my friend Margaret says, what in the whiskers? This is all backwards. The story these people are telling means that idolatry is faithfulness and injustice is actually flourishing. Fear is freedom. The queen of heaven is the source of goodness and the Lord is some made up God that Jeremiah won't shut up about. Down is up and wrong is right. And the entire story of what's happening and why and whose fault it is and how to fix it is, in theological terms, bananas, which is basically Jeremiah's response. In chapter 44, verse 21, he answers this group and he says, As for the offerings you made in the towns of Judah, did not the Lord remember them? Did it not come into God's mind? In other words, yeah, God knows you made offerings to the queen of heaven. And God has thoughts and feelings about that. Verse 22, the Lord could no longer bear the sight of your evil doings. And in this verse, the use of the word bear is a carrying sort of image. The idea that the Lord is holding the weight of our sin and carrying it. In fact, that God would be carrying the weight of sin so that people don't have to. And by carrying it God's self, there's more time for the people to perhaps recognize the goodness of God and come back. But now the Lord can no longer bear it. The weight of the carrying has become too heavy. And 22 continues on. The abominations you committed, God could carry those no more. Therefore, your land became a desolation and a waste and a curse without inhabitant as it is to this day. It's because you burned offerings, because you sinned against the Lord and didn't obey the voice of the Lord or walk in the law or in the statutes or in the decrees that this disaster has befallen you, as is still evident today. In other words, Jeremiah's like, yeah, God knows you kept making offerings to the queen of heaven. That's why all this happened. It's those offerings that worked against you. They weren't protecting you. They were proving that you didn't even care about the story God was inviting you into. It's pretty amazing to me, actually, as we've walked through Jeremiah, the timeliness of so many of the passages, but especially this particular little story. Because sometimes I feel like people now talk about Jesus but I don't even recognize that person. Or they talk about the Bible, but I don't recognize that plot line. Like, are we even reading the same book? A few weeks back in a different sermon, we talked about discerning today's obedience, knowing when to break away from things in the past and move into something new because we think that God's leading us forward. But this is sort of the other side of that. It's the opposite. How do you know when to stay put? How do you know when it's time to stick to the story instead of going with some other plot line? Just like the queen invited the rescue party to forsake the story of an overland and instead go with the story of Underland. Just like the party in Egypt was going to go with the story of the queen of heaven and forsake the story of Yahweh their God. There are also a lot of examples in our own culture 
where idolatry is faithfulness and injustice is flourishing and fear is freedom and Trump is the source of goodness or the Enneagram or you in your own light. And Jesus is some historical figure that it's cool to admire, but not like actually obey. When you stick to the story, the one with Jesus as the culmination, the one that started in ancient times and is recorded in an ancient book, there are going to be times that we feel like the weirdos. Like, are they right? And I'm missing it. In this moment, we have to know the story well enough to recognize the right plot line that we want to live into. We have to know the story well enough to recognize the wrong plot line. Jeremiah knew this plot line really well. The plot line where Yahweh is the God who created all things and made them good. And that Yahweh is the main character and the hero who called Israel to be God's own. The hero who rescued them when they were enslaved in Egypt. The hero who led them to a good land. And that God is one who does not oppress others and who is disgusted by oppression. Who chooses extremely long times of waiting and warning and hoping for return from lost people. The story is of a God who regularly chooses to bear and carry the burden of sin instead of the people carrying it themselves, who even will take action to be the one to restore all things, although God was not the one who broke them in the first place. That's the plot line, and Jeremiah knows it. So whoever this queen of heaven is, she can't hold a candle to the goodness and the power and the character of our God. You think you got it bad because you stopped pouring libations and making cake for the queen of heaven? Wrong plot line. But you have to know the story well enough to know you're in the right one. I mean, they are literally going back to Egypt and they don't see the irony. Now, the theologian N.T. Wright is known for a framework he calls the five-act play. The five-act play. The metaphor takes a cue from theater. The idea being that the first four acts have been written, but the fifth remains to be written. The first four are creation, sin's disruption of God's dream, God's covenant with Israel, and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Creation, sin, covenant, and Jesus. And now the story has been passed along to the church. Our job is to live the fifth and final act. It doesn't repeat act one to four. And there's not a single script we're following. Rather, we are writing it. But it does have to be part of the same story. And so when you exchange the flag in the country for the words Jesus in a paraphrase of scripture and say that things were great when we kept our eyes fixed on the flag and worshipped our country, that's Babylon talking. That's not for the kingdom of God. Wrong plot line. When you promise, as Trump did in 2016, that if you're elected, Christians will have power. We worship a God who gives up and gives over God's own power and then uses power to uphold the powerless. That's the wrong plot line. And this isn't just in conservative politics. When you promise that, girl, just wash your face and live a good story, with designer handbags and a protective bubble of self-efficacy and privilege keeping you from the world's problems, that is receiving your reward in full. 
not seeking first God's kingdom. Wrong plot line. When you become an Instagram activist, writing all the correct jargon and promising that being right about what's wrong in the world makes you better than others. That's just Pharisees praying, thank you, God, that I'm not like them. It's the wrong plot line. We live in a world where so many people are so sure that they know why things are wrong and who's most wrong of all, and they know how to make it right, or at least how to be happy in the midst of the mess. And when all of that is what's happening around us, we have to know the story we're living. We have to know enough about Acts 1 to 4 if we want to do our best to write Act 5 together, to not succumb to the mandolin that invites us to stay down in Underland and say that there is no sun and forget about Aslan, to not drift towards the Queen of Heaven, whatever form she takes in 2020. We have to know that we, church, live in this world and Jesus is Lord all will be well. And there is nothing more lovely than a faithful life devoted to loving God and loving the world like it's family. And so may God give us the wisdom and the courage to remember that the sun is real. It is not copying the lamp. And that despite the sound of the music luring us away from the story, there really is Aslan. Voted enough to Acts 1 to 4 of God's great story in the world to be ready to write our part of Act 5 as best we know how. Together. Amen.